at the beginning of this new year, uh, I'd like to take just a few minutes before the, the uh, message to, um, for a little Q&A about our church. If you were here two weeks ago, I uh, said a few words about how our church is governed. We talked about deacons, such as those ordained earlier, elders, and what's called our church session. The word session comes from an old Latin word, sessio, that means seated. And you can think of the church session as, as the board. It's those elders who are serving an active term on the board. This morning, I'd like to raise another question, and it's a question that that if I were visiting a church who are relatively new at a church, I'd really want to know the answer to this question. And it is, how are financial decisions made at River Oaks? Any of you ever wonder about that? I think it's an important question to, to be able to answer. How are uh, financial decisions made? Well, the session, uh, what we may think of as the actively governing board, uh, makes broad oversight decisions, including our finance, but most of the day-to-day uh, -day ongoing financial decisions are made by ministry teams. For example, our missions or outreach team makes decisions about 11% of our budget that's allocated to missions, which missionaries to support uh, local ministries and so forth. But our stewardship team that you can think of as an administrative team has the most hands-on uh, detailed oversight of our church budget, church uh, compensation, personnel, policies. And I gotta say this to you, there are a lot of things that you can worry about in a church as a pastor. But for me, one of those is not financial mismanagement because of the people on this team and the role they play. Now, I'm, I'm just going to brag a little bit about the people on this team, and I'm, I'm not on this team, never have been, but Dr. Holly Brower, professor of business at Wake Forest, a faithful member of our church, is on this team. Sheila Garcia, CPA, uh, 20 years with Wells Fargo, is on this team. Shay Heckard, uh, our church business administrator, who is also a CPA, and we are so blessed to have her on our staff, years of experience as an auditor, is on this team. Dave Miller is the team leader, the chair of this team. Dave is a medical doctor, internal medicine at Wake Forest. Uh, great administrative gifts he has. As we continue, uh, Susan Ryan, an attorney, long-term, long-time member of River Oaks, expertise in human resources and civil law, Andy Spate with BBT, Masters in Finance, and also an elder at River Oaks, and Brian Thompson, an attorney with great experience in uh, nonprofits, ministries in our area. And then lastly, Andrew Wild. Now, Andrew does not have the business credentials of the others, but he does claim to have made a small fortune by investing in Bitcoin. It was, it was short-lived, though. He lost it all within one month. So <laughs> nevertheless, he's our pastoral staff rep on this team. And I actually do know him to be a very wise and frugal guy. So these are the folks that largely oversee our money and make decisions about things uh, like compensation and personnel. And I am so very, very grateful to them because of the many hours they put in and the way 
they serve our church. I just want to give them a hand. Would you join me in thanking these guys serving our church in this way? So, that's just a little bit about our church. Today we're going to continue our study of the theme of guidance, and before we do, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you for your people here today. I thank you for them. Thank you for your church. Father, we want to be a a church full of your people who are growing to know you better and to love you more. We want to know you as our Lord, our guide, our shepherd. Open our eyes today as we look at your word. Give us insight so that we might indeed know you better and love you more. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our guide. Amen. Do you know that God has always been a guide to his people? From beginning to end in Scripture, we see God's role as the guide of his people. In the very beginning of Scripture, he gives guidance and instruction to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He guides Noah uh, with detailed uh, uh, ways to build the ark. He guides Abraham to leave his homeland and follow him to a land that he would show him. Throughout Scripture, God is always guiding His people. The very end of the Bible, Jesus is giving guidance to the churches in the book of Revelation. The image that God shows for Himself that I think most clearly speaks to His role as a caring guide for His people is that of a shepherd. The book of Genesis in the Old Testament, uh, Jacob speaks as God uh, speaks of God as the one who has been my shepherd all my days. King David spoke of the Lord in the 23rd Psalm as my shepherd, the one who leads me beside still waters, the one who leads me in paths of righteousness. Jesus chose the name shepherd for himself. The Gospel of John, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus went on to say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Later in the New Testament, Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And before Jesus went to the cross and died and was raised and ascended to heaven, he gave us a promise for every one of his followers, every one of his children. He said, if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you, and when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. God has always been and always will be a guide for his people. As we think about guidance, I I think the starting place is really getting to know the guide better. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor, author, theologian, in his book, Discovering God's Will, writes this, we learn about guidance primarily by learning about the guide. Knowing God's ways, as we see his ways of working with people in Scripture, knowing his ways gives us greater stability in knowing and doing his will. Now, two weeks ago, we began looking at Psalm 25. I'd like to look at it again today. Uh, we began talking about the importance of knowing the guide today, following God as our guide. A little background on Psalm 25. It was composed by King David. 
And it has, as one of its key themes, the theme of guidance. As with study of all the Psalms, it's helpful to know what was going on in the life of the psalm writer when the psalm was composed. And in King David's life, the setting for the psalm, the context or the background for the psalm is this. David was facing some significant uh, trial, even a crisis, we could say, because in, in the body of the psalm, Psalm 25, he writes, um, turn to me, he's speaking to the Lord, be gracious to me, I'm lonely and afflicted, the troubles of my heart are enlarged, bring me out of my distresses, consider my affliction and trouble. So this is, this is what's happening in David's life, the time of the composition of Psalm 25. Now what do we learn from King David about guidance, how it's received, how to better follow the guide in this psalm. Well, again, I think stability in doing God's will, knowing and doing His will, is born out of a relationship. A relationship of trust based on God's mercy and steadfast love. King David begins this psalm by expressing his trust in God, his faith and his belief in God when he says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, in you I trust. And as he continues to pray in this psalm, he prays for God's guidance. We see this in, in the following verses when he prays, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. He's seeking God's guidance. For you, the God of my salvation, for you I'll wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Now, he's appealing to God on the basis of what? God's mercy and God's steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, O God, for the sake of your goodness. Now, there are two words in here that are particularly important, and they're the words steadfast love. Depending on the version of the Bible you read, in the place of steadfast love, you might find the word loving kindness. Um, but the word steadfast love translate one single Hebrew word, and it's one of the most important biblical words uh, that we have. It would be pronounced hesed. And it has to do with God's faithful, loyal love. The word's found about 240 times in the Old Testament. And uh, if you're using the English Standard Version, as I am this morning, it's often translated steadfast love. The Vines Expository Dictionary says there are three basic meanings in this word, and they always interact. And those are strength, steadfastness, and love. This has said, this unconditional love to which King David is appealing as he's asking God to make him know his ways and teach him his paths and lead him in his truth. It's God's unconditional love extended toward us. When I was in seminary, I took a course on the book of Psalms, and the professor uh, spoke at length about the importance of this word and understanding God and his ways with human beings. And, and he said it's perhaps best understood as loyal love. It is love that is based on 
the, the faithfulness of God. It's his unconditional love that he chooses to extend to us human beings, his loyal love. And sometimes when we're seeking guidance, uh, we, we feel confused, we feel conflicted. Perhaps King David did when he wrote this psalm. And sometimes we just have to come to God and, and say, I don't know what to do, but I'm just putting my trust in you, God to show me your paths, to make me know your ways, to lead me in your will, and what I'm supposed to do right now. As I reflect on decisions I've had to make in life, big, major type decisions, the one that comes to my mind first was one I think I struggled with the most. And it was my senior year of college. I was gonna graduate in a few months, and like all the other seniors at, at school, I had, I had been interviewing for jobs. And I had two job offers. One was in Winston-Salem, and the other was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, I was going to be a sales rep. I wanted to, to go in, into sales, and um, both jobs looked very good to me. The one in Winston-Salem was a bit less secure and a bit more risk because compensation was entirely based on commission, on the, the business products that you sold. The one in Knoxville, Tennessee seemed a little more secure and stable. And, and the manager that I interviewed with, he, he was a man who just, his character seemed such, we didn't talk about faith, but I would have guessed that this man you know, was, a, was a Christian. And I couldn't make up my mind. And uh, I struggled and struggled. I had the guys in my Bible study uh, pray with me. And I can remember being in our apartment. I think it was a Sunday night. It was the night. It was the deadline. I had to call both of them, accept one job, turn the other down. And I was so conflicted. I'd overthought it so much, I had no idea what to do. I'd wanted to know God's will, but there was nothing in the Bible to say which job to take. There was nobody counseling me that said, I really think you should take this job for this reason. And the more I prayed and the more I asked God, the more confused I felt. And I can remember having to make that phone call and saying first, God, I don't, this is, this is a big decision. I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to trust you that you won't let me make a mistake. I'm just putting my trust there. I'm just putting my faith there that you, I'm going to choose and you just won't let me make a mistake. Now, that doesn't sound very mature, I know. But sometimes our seeking of God and, and, and guidance just has to rest on the fact that his love is steadfast and he will direct our steps uh, as our great shepherd. So David's appealing to God. This relationship, a relationship that's based on God's hesed, his steadfast love and his mercy. He later goes on to teach us in the psalm that guidance is born not only out of this relationship of trust based on God's steadfast love, but that guidance is also given to those who have an attitude of humility. David goes on to say, Verses 8 and 9, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his ways. Continuing to talk about how God gives guidance 
He leads the humble. He teaches the humble his way. Now, it almost sounds like God gives preference to sinners when he says he instructs sinners in the way. I think what we, we should understand, the way we should understand this verse is that David's telling us God even instructs sinners in the way they should go. And the fact is, it's those who recognize their sin and their need for God's forgiveness that are the recipients of God's mercy, of his guidance, of his grace, of his care. This is probably best seen, I think, best illustrated in a teaching Jesus gave. It was a parable he taught, and he taught the parable, he directed it to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee began praying to God, praying really to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of everything I possess, and I'm not like the ungodly, like the tax collector over there. The tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then says, the tax collector, that's the one who left the temple justified by God. And Jesus sums it up by telling us, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see David teaching us in the 25th Psalm that guidance, learning God's ways, coming to greater stability and doing his will is born out of this relationship of trust in God's steadfast love, comes to those with an attitude of humility, and finally comes to those with an attitude of reverence, the fear of the Lord. As the psalm continues in verse 12, we read, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord. Beautiful phrase, isn't it? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make known to them his covenant. Those who fear him. People often ask questions about this phrase, the fear of the Lord, wondering what it means. It's not the type of terror that drives us away from God. It's not the type of anxious fear that keeps you awake at night. The fear of the Lord, as it's used in Scripture, refers to a reverence for Him, a high regard for Him, a respect for Him, an awe at the greatness of His power, His goodness, and His majesty. A person who fears the Lord is one who respects the Lord respects the Lord's wisdom and will and ways. God's guidance is not very likely to be given to a person says, who says, uh, God, I'd like your, your input. Uh, I'll consider it. But if I like my choice better, that's the way I'm going to go. Now, none of us would actually say that to God, would we? But I expect most of us have had some at some point in life, have made a decision kind of that way. Yeah, God, I know what, I want to know what you want to say, but here's really what I want to do, and that's what I think I'm going to do anyway. A key to receiving God's guidance, the knowledge of his will, is approaching him 
with the willingness to do his will when he shows it. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, if anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know of the teaching, whether it's, it's from God or from man. The willingness to do God's will, an attitude of reverence. David writes, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear, who reverence him in this way, and he makes known to them his covenant. The word covenant is another Bible word that's critically important. It has to do with a relationship, an agreement that God initiates in Scripture with human beings. It's based on the goodness of God. It's based on the faithfulness of God. God initiates it. It's based on his steadfast and unconditional love. His covenant was made with Abraham and others in Scripture, but the ultimate fulfillment of God's great covenant is found in Jesus. The one who had come to this earth as a, as a human being and revealed to us God the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The one who would ultimately sacrifice his life on the cross, the one who knew no sin on our behalf, would bear the judgment, the death we deserved so that we could share his righteousness. God fulfilled this covenant for us in Jesus. And when we have embraced what Jesus did for us, we have entered into an eternal relationship with God, the inheritance of Jesus Christ himself, so that in this life we can rightly call him our shepherd, our guide, the great shepherd of the sheep and the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. If you want to be guided in life by God, get to know him better, get to love him more. Knowing his ways leads to a greater stability in doing his will. And as we're still early in this new year, 2019, I want to ask you a question as we prepare to close. What, what's your greatest goal for the year ahead? I'm not much of a believer in making New Year's resolutions. Um, one of my favorite news podcasts is called The World and Everything in It. And, and this past week, they were talking about resolutions. And um, they reported that most people had failed on health-related resolutions by January the 12th, pretty early in the year. A study at the University of Scranton said that only about 8% of people in general fulfill resolutions that they make at the beginning of a new year. But I think it's reasonable to have a goal for this new year, and in particular, a goal that does not depend upon the steadfastness of our resolve but the steadfastness of God's love. One that doesn't depend on our willpower, but our willingness to receive God's power. Our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit who will bring this to pass because it is certainly His will. I'm talking about a goal of knowing God better. I, I love the verse you'll see on the screen from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 where God says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands 
and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. The greatest goal I know to commend to you this year is one we often mention here. And that is to, to know God better and love him more. And it's out of that personal knowledge of trust and his steadfast love. It's out of that attitude of humility. It's out of the attitude of reverential fear of the Lord. That we will find greater stability in knowing God's will. Living in his ways. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love, your unconditional love, your love that is based not on our goodness but on yours, that is based not on our faithfulness but on yours. Lord, would you work in each one of us as we need you to work so that we know you better and love you more. For any here who have never embraced the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf and have never entered into that eternal covenant that you have provided for our salvation. Draw them to faith in you this day. May your guidance and blessing be on your people, Lord. And we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.